Fall, 1816. A ship from the West Indies arrives on a stormy night in the port city of Alexandria, Virginia. A well-dressed couple disembarks. Strange, since this is a merchant vessel. Even stranger, the woman's face is covered with a black veil. They move quickly up Cameron Street to the city hotel at the corner of Cameron and Royal, where they take residence in room 8. The presumed husband demands a doctor as his companion is very ill. When the doctor arrives, the husband stops him at the door. Before he can attend to this woman, the doctor must swear never to disclose her identity. Within the week, she's dead. Her husband pays the mason, the doctor, and the tavern, all in promissory notes from the Bank of England. It's an early version of writing a check. He pays $1,500 for the headstone, and that's in 1816 money. That's not to mention the fee for the doctor in the nicest tavern in town. The burial takes place in St. Paul Cemetery. Her headstone reads, To the memory of a female stranger, whose mortal sufferings terminated on the 14th day of October, 1816, aged 23 years, 8 months. This stone is placed here by her disconsolate husband, in whose arms she sighed out her latest breath and who under God did his utmost even to soothe the cold, dead ear of death. How loved, how valued once avails thee not, to whom related or by whom begot, a heap of dust alone remains of thee, tis all thou art, and all the proud shall be. To him gave all the prophets witness, that through his name whosoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. Acts 10th chapter 43rd verse. The husband leaves town as soon as his wife is buried. The promissory notes bounce just as quickly as the man did. Though the husband left town for places unknown, the wife's spirit, it seems, never left roommate. Tonight's on the Dreary Midnight Podcast, we're discussing the story, the ghost, and the possible identity of the female stranger of Gatsby's Tavern Museum. Lisa, and this is Dreary Midnight. Tonight I am joined by my fun fall candle. But the narratives about the stranger's death and the speculation therein did not start immediately, at least not in writing. Gossips tend to be on top of things. Accounts vary about the time between when the couple arrives in Alexandria and when the stranger dies. When I first heard the story, she dies within the week. Other accounts have them arrive in early September. Obviously, she was buried in mid-October. A written narrative of the events didn't even emerge until 20 years after the female stranger's demise. In 1836, Lucy Seymour of Maryland wrote a short piece about visiting the stranger's grave and then talking to the minister who oversaw the burial rites. It was published in the Alexandria Gazette in December of that year right next to headlines about the new state of Arkansas and classical language is useless and medical dogs. Will they become more common? Other sources sporadically report on the story through the early 20th century. They are mostly in the Alexandria Gazette, though there are a few stories in Ladies Home Journal. One edition of the Gazette in 1866 names the man as Carlton and calls him a cheat and a swindler. Perhaps the Mason wrote that. 
1913, the Ladies' Home Journal wrote that some unknown person, presumably the husband, visited the grave every year on the stranger's death day, up until about a dozen years after, after the stranger had died. But what about the stranger? If the stories are true, she still haunts the tavern where she died. The tavern building changed hands over the years, serving as everything from a hotel to a tavern to a coffee house. It was initially built in 1793 uh, by Mr. John Weiss. If you visit Gatsby's Tavern Museum today, uh, it's adjoined with a slightly smaller building built in 1785, also by Mr. John Weiss. Its most famous proprietor was uh, Mr. John Gatsby, but it changed hands over the years. Things like hotels and taverns and coffee houses are actually pretty closely related when it comes down to it. Mostly it depends on the kind of service you're going to get, and in 1966, both buildings were uh, falling into disrepair and were sold to the city through the American Legion and were turned into the museum. It's been called Gatsby's Tavern ever since, after Mr. John Gatsby. In his tenure at the City Hotel, as it was called in his day, Mr. Gatsby hosted various events, including birthnight balls in George Washington's honor in 1798 and 99. It's the 1790s. In addition to being a national hero, Washington was a local. He had a townhouse around the corner from Gatsby's, two blocks in one direction from the church he attended, and two and a half in the other direction from Gatsby's and a lot of major taverns. The Washington townhouse did not have a kitchen, so the general was a regular at Gatsby's and presumably others. Washington was in attendance at his last ever birthnight ball in 1799. Washington was in attendance at his last ever birthnight ball in 1799, though he didn't know it at the time. Gatsby's tavern resumed the tradition of birthnight balls in the 1990s. And that was where the first reports of the ghost stories took place. Most of the time at the birthnight ball, you're either dressed in modern formal wear or period formal wear. So when the birthnight balls started, it was either going to be dressed in the 1990s formal wear or 1790s formal wear. One story goes that an attendee notices a young woman from across the ballroom dressed in period clothing from the wrong era, the late 18-teens not the 1790s. She meets his eye and vanishes out the door into the hall. Curious, the attendee follows. There are two doors from the ballroom to the hall, you see, and the attendee should have been able to see the woman right as he stepped out the door. She's at the dead end of the hall, right by the window, and right where room 8 used to be. But she's not there. But the door to room 8 is slightly ajar. He figures that's where she went. And so the attendee follows her. The room is empty, but the candle in the hurricane is lit. That's odd. The hurricane in the hallway isn't lit, and this room wasn't meant to be on display tonight. The attendee speaks to a volunteer at the event, saying that the lit candle in the display room is probably a fire hazard. And also, uh, could the volunteer point him in the direction of the woman in the white dress with the empire waist? The volunteer is confused. The display room is supposed to be closed tonight. Just to be sure, the volunteer and the attendee both go back to that room, and the volunteer asks him to point out the hurricane in question. So they go into room 8. The candle is unlit. The wick is still waxy and white and untouched. To be absolutely sure, the volunteer passes their hand over the top of the hurricane, where the heat would escape. The air there is still warm. That's the most prolonged ghost story with an actual full-body sighting. More commonly, people outside see the lit candle after hours, 
often in roommate or in that hallway window. And this is after hours when there are no evening events and the museum has closed for the night. There have also been reports of seeing shadowy figures out of the corner of one's eye. Though, if Gatsby's though, either building is haunted, there's probably a half dozen other ghosts that could have been there. After all, people were enslaved, and hotels are known to have spirits coming in and out. But who was the female stranger? Different accounts hold different ideas. There are two theories that I like. One is from a book entitled The Narrative of John Trust. According to Trust, the stranger is a woman named Blanche Fordan. Her mother was impoverished and died while giving birth in Cornwall in England. Fordan was adopted and raised in Martinique in the Caribbean. Later, after the fall of Napoleon, two men named John Trust and John Rowe, W-R-O-E, left France for Martinique. Trust and Fordan fell in love, but that made Rowe jealous. So, instead of showing some degree of reason, Rowe decides to mesmerize Blanche and take her on a ship bound for the Americas. They got married along the way. They arrive in Alexandria. They say they're from the West Indies, not Martinique. Blanche is seasick, but possibly sick with something else, too. They are shown to the city hotel, and, well, secrecy, death, etc., etc., Blanche dies in mid-October. The main addition is that Blanche asks Roe, as she's simultaneously dying and coming out of her mesmerized state, that her husband finds trust and tells him the truth. But wait, there's more. They're all siblings! Dun dun dun. Turns out, John Trust and Blanche Fordan are twins. John Rowe is their older brother. Being born to an impoverished single mother meant that the kids were adopted all over the globe. The brothers have a showdown in the graveyard. Well, it's a great story. Has so many hallmarks of uh, Victorian sensationalism, from black magic to surprise incest to, uh, again, a confrontation in a graveyard. There's a lot of big twists in an era of big twists because soap operas hadn't been invented yet. The other theory is that the female stranger is Theodosia Burr Alston, daughter of Aaron Burr. See, the story of her death is strange in its own right. In 1807, Aaron Burr was tried on grounds of treason. He was acquitted, but Burr left for Europe in a self-imposed exile and wound up returning to New York in 1812. By then, Theodosia was married to Joseph Alston and was mourning the death of her young son. She didn't feel well enough to travel to see her father until the fall of 1812, but by then there were extenuating risks involved with the potential visit. In ordinary circumstances, the quickest way from South Carolina to New York would be by boat. In 1812, however, the British were invading the newly formed United States. British ships patrolled the East Coast, including South Carolina. The regular tier dangers of 19th century travel, involving seasickness and drowning in piracy, all of those were elevated because of the potential for being shot at by, again, both warships and pirates. Still, Theodosia insisted on visiting her father. Ordinarily, Joseph would want to go with her, but these were not ordinary circumstances. Again, it's wartime, and he's the brigadier general of the state militia, and he was the newly elected governor of South Carolina. He couldn't exactly leave the state. So, Theodosia set out with a family friend, Timothy Green. 
they boarded a ship called the Patriot on December 31st, 1812. They were never seen again, dead or alive. But perhaps they were. Perhaps they were captured by pirates. Perhaps, after an ordeal that lasted nearly four years, they landed in Alexandria, trying to return to Burr. Perhaps Theodosia and Timothy had run away together, faked their own deaths, and were trying to conceal their identities until they could receive Burr's blessing. Only for Theodosia to die on the last leg. But. But the female stranger's headstone lists her age. 23 years, 8 months, as of October 1816. Were she to live that long... Theodosia Burr Alston would have been 33 years and almost four months in October 1816, having been born at the end of June of 1783. Perhaps she could pass for younger. Perhaps someone lied. Perhaps the Mason messed up. Perhaps the Mason did something on purpose. Maybe. Just maybe. The veil she was wearing worked. And with the prospect of DNA testing, someone could probably find out who the stranger was related to. But should we? But it seems like, whoever she is, she and her husband did not want her identity to be known. And this is one of my favorite stories. So, stay healthy, stay away from pirates, and safe travels as you journey home on this dreary midnight. Good night. And real quick before y'all go, if you would like to support the show, join us on Patreon, buy an ad space, send us a Gmail, drearymidnightpodcast at gmail.com, or visit the WordPress, drearymidnightpod.wordpress.com. If you have episode suggestions, email them in, or buy a coffee if you wanted to make a one-time donation. Either way, 